It might have something to do with auctioneering on Saturday night and singing with a less hour of sleep on Sunday morning. But we're glad to see you all. Good morning. I knew it was going to be weak this morning. But we're delighted that you're here. We welcome our visitors. And uh, thank you, Matt, for leading, leading our singing. I love to hear people's stories. Um, I hope, and this is your warning, if I come and visit you and I have a notepad with me, don't, don't be alarmed at that. Uh, I just, I love to hear people's stories and often take notes and uh, just so I can reflect back on it. Included in people's stories, I love to hear salvation stories about how people that I am coming to know and, and love, uh, how they came to Christ, influences in their lives, and, and when they uh, put Christ on in baptism, and, and just all the aspects of the story, the salvation story. But make no mistake that when we talk about our salvation story, your story, our salvation is really God's story because he's the one who initiated it. He's the one who made our salvation possible through the gift of his son, Jesus. There is a response required on our part, but again, recognize our story of salvation is really God's story. It's God's story. He's the main character. His son is the one who purchased our salvation. I want to go with you, remind you of a well-known story of conversion. Um, we might call him a terrorist. And you may already be jumping to the Bible character I want us to study this morning. We might call him a terrorist because there are certainly Christians who are terrified of this man. And that man, of course, is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. So let me review with you, and if you will be looking up Acts chapter 9, we're going to be reading some verses together from Acts chapter 9, but I want to review his conversion story, or some aspects of it, and I want to ask us to compare our story with his, and we should find, or we need to find several parallels. We first read of Saul of Tarsus when he's holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen, whom we call the first Christian martyr. Acts 7, verse 58, first mention of Saul. They cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Just the fact that they're laying down their coats at, the, at his feet indicates to us he's okay with what's happening. He endorses it. In fact, I think we could easily say he is promoting what is happening here, the stoning of this Christian named Stephen. In fact, in verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was consenting to, to his death. This is the beginning of his story of persecuting Christians, thinking that he's doing the will of God. In fact, he would say later in Acts 23 verse 1 that he had lived... All, this, all of his life in good conscience. Even persecuting Christians he had done in good conscience. Why? Because he believed he was doing the will of God. In fact, Acts 26 verse 9, he says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Because at that point, he views Jesus as an imposter, he is not the Messiah, and so he's doing everything that he can to get rid of 
the name of Christ. And he went to great lengths to do that. Let's go back to Acts chapter 8. and Notice these words beginning with the second half of verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, or he tried to destroy the church, some versions say, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He is fierce. He is relentless in his goal of getting rid of all Christians, stamping out the name of Christ. He would tell his story, including his B.C., his before Christ. And here are some of what he would say about that. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus, to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So this is what I did. This is what I engaged in. But as you read this, notice how he treated Christians, binding them, bringing, in, bringing them in chains, bringing them back bound to Jerusalem to be, to be tried. Acts chapter 26, in a, as he retells his story, he says this about his B.C., before Christ. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, not just in Jerusalem, but to foreign cities. In fact, everywhere he would go, he'd find the synagogue and, and look for, for those who were professing Christ and, and bring them and bind them and bring them to Jerusalem. Later, when he wrote to Christians in Galatia, he, he said this about his life before he encountered Christ. You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being made, being more exceedingly zealous. That makes me want to point this out. Not only was he zealous, but he was exceedingly zealous and more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Acts chapter 9, he's gotten permission from, from the high priest to go to Damascus. Acts 26 verse 12, he tells about that. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the great, of the, of the chief priests. Then he tells about how his life was changed. All right, we do some comparison. And we may come to this conclusion, well, my, I'm certainly not as bad as, as Saul was. I mean, he was persecuting Christians, casting his vote against them even to their death, deaths. I'm not as bad as Saul was. But here's how we can relate to Saul. In fact, we're going to talk about a, a bright light, brighter than the sun that he sees. And instead of comparing ourselves to Saul, I think we need to compare ourselves to that bright light, that blinding light 
Because that, that's, the, that's the glory of Jesus. That's the glory of God. And it's so bright. And, and it blinds Saul. But that, that would, that's what we need to compare ourselves with. We may not have persecuted Christians like Saul. We not have been, may not have been that zealous against the cause of Christ. But compared to the glory of God, we have dark stains. We have imperfections. We are sinners in His sight. And so we, just like Saul, need salvation. Make no mistake, we need salvation just as much as Saul. But it's on this road to Damascus that things change for Saul. And let me just um, um, note some words that describe what happens as we read in Acts chapter 9. I invite you to, to look that up with me because we're going to read some verses together. First, there's a confrontation. A confrontation. Notice with me verse 1 of Acts 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that is, Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 6. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, to, to find people who are of the way and bind them, bring them back to Jerusalem. Ultimately, likely to consent to their deaths. When this bright light shines and it stops Saul in his tracks and it's Jesus appearing to him. At first he says, who are you, Lord? And that, that time, Lord may have just been used in the term, as a term of respect, as it often was during that time. But when Jesus identifies himself, then he says, then he asks, what shall I do, Lord? And now Lord is used in the sense of, I recognize now that you are Lord. You are the Messiah. And so what, what shall I do? The Lord's answer to Saul, in fact, he gives more detail in Acts chapter 26, is basically that he's been selected. He's been selected for a special mission, and that is to preach the good news of Jesus. As the Lord told him, I send you now to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The Lord has a mission for Saul, and he would fulfill that mission. He would be the apostle to the Gentiles, sharing Jesus with everybody that he possibly could. At one point in his life, he was against Jesus, trying to even get rid of Christians. 
But then after this change in his life, he would preach Christ to everyone that he possibly could. But I have this question I'd like for us to consider. Was Saul saved on the road to Damascus? You hear that a lot of times. Well, Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. But biblically speaking, and you test this with me, the answer is no. He was not saved on the road to Damascus. Even though Jesus appeared to him, stopped him in his tracks, kept him from going to Damascus to do what he had intended, he stopped Saul, appeared to him, says, I've got a mission for you, but he's not yet been told how he's going to be saved from his sins. He's still in his sins. So the answer is no, Saul was not saved on the road to Damascus, but he was on his way. He was on his way. This was part of his conversion story, but he wasn't saved from his sins at at that point. Because he is told, as we read in verse 6, the Lord said to him, go into the city, the city of Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. And what he's told that he must do not only pertains to the mission that God had called him to fulfill, but also how to be saved from his sins. So Saul had a Damascus moment, one that he would never, ever forget. Now, when it comes to your and my story, we should not expect a Damascus moment like Saul. I'm afraid some are waiting for this huge sign from heaven that is going to stop them in their tracks and the Lord appear to them and tell them, this is what you need to do in order to be saved. This was a unique event for a unique person who, ha- who would be given a unique mission and the accomplishment of, of spreading the good news. Now God calls, he's still calling us to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus. But now he calls us through the message of Jesus. In fact, this is what I suggest would be your Damascus, my Damascus moment. When we recognize that we're sinners in the sight of God and we desperately need salvation. And when we come to the realization that that's exactly why Jesus went to the cross. In fact, the Apostle Paul, instead of recalling how the Lord had appeared to him and all those miraculous things that happened, you know what Paul would refer back to time and time again? Let me give you an example. He would say, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, notice, who loved me and gave himself for me. You put that in the context. He never forgot what he had done against the name of Christ. And he could have been overwhelmed with guilt because of that. He could have just despaired and given up and said, well, there's no hope for me. But that's why Jesus appeared to him, not only to tell him I've got a mission for you, but also to tell him how he could be forgiven of his sins. How the the very one that he was trying to eradicate from the minds and the mouths of people, Jesus, was the very one who died for him because he loved him and wanted him, Saul, to be saved. Folks, that's your Damascus moment. 
When you come to that realization that I'm lost in my sin and I desperately need salvation and that has been provided by God when he sent his son to die on the cross for my sins. And when I personalize that, when you personalize that, that's your Damascus moment. That's when, when God has you where he wants you. You're in a position now to, to be saved. But even at that Damascus moment, we're not saved, but we're on our way. Let's look again at Saul's story, his conversion story. First was confrontation. Second was contrition. Contrition. Read with me verses 8 and 9 of Acts chapter 9. Then Saul arose from the ground. This is after he, uh, the Lord appeared to him in that bright light. He arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He is blinded. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he's blinded. He's blinded. For three days, in blindness, perhaps because of the glory of this light, but also perhaps God is giving Saul time for introspection here. He cannot see outwardly, so he looks inwardly. And he's looking at how he had lived his life before this point. And he now recognizes the error of his ways. I thought I was persecuting followers of an imposter, but now I realize I was persecuting Jesus by persecuting his people. And he's penitent. An expression of that penitence was, which contrition means feeling or showing sorrow and remorse for sins or shortcomings. He is he, is, he has a contrite heart. He is penitent. And as an expression of that, he doesn't eat or drink. He fasts for three days. And not only that, in verse 11, when the Lord tells Ananias to go to see him, he says of Saul, behold, he is praying. He's praying. And I've thought a lot about that. I try to put myself in Saul's shoes and his conversion story as I compare it to my own. And I, and I ask, what, what, would, what do you think he was praying about? And knowing how Saul must be rehearsing all those terrible things that he had done to terrorizing Christians, thinking he was doing the will of God, and he's filled with remorse. He, he's not eating or drinking. He can't see. All he can see are his sins. What do you think he's praying about? If I were Saul, you know what I would be praying about? God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Show me what you want. Tell me what do you want me to do. Here is a sinner praying. And I suggest to you, he is likely praying, God, forgive me. But then we're faced with this question. Was Saul saved at this point when he was praying in contriteness? And the biblical answer is no. But he was on his way. He's not saved from his sins because we're, we're going to see he's told how his sins can be washed away. But even the, in his contriteness, even when in, in his fasting and praying, He's not saved from his sins yet. 
He's going to be told what he must do. You see, you and I may look back on a time of contrition in our own lives when we were convicted of our sins and, and, and we felt that separation from God and, and perhaps we even prayed, God, forgive me. Tell me what you want me to do. Show me from your word what you want me to do. And if we compare our story, that part of our story to Saul's story, what we realize, Saul wasn't saved at that point. But he was on his way. And if you can look back in your life at a time when you experienced something similar to Saul or you responded similarly to Saul, hey, cherish that moment. You may look back and see, see that as a defining moment in your, in your walk with Christ. But realize with Saul, there's more to the salvation story. Because even at this point, as contrite as he was, Saul still had that burden, that weight of sin in his life. But he's on his way to salvation. And watch what happens. Con from confrontation to contrition, now there's concern. And obviously Saul is concerned. He's been confronted by the Christ. He's convicted of his sins. He is fasting and praying, wanting to know, what can I do about this? I've been doing wrong. I want to be right with God. But that's not the only one who has concern. Notice with me uh, verse 10 of Acts 9. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So here the Lord tells Ananias, a disciple, go see Saul. Ananias knows immediately who Saul is. He knows this Saul of Tarsus and what Saul has been doing. He's concerned about going to meet this man. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So he's apprehensive. He's heard of this man. What if he, what if he turns on me? What if he puts chains on me and takes me down to Jerusalem? Lord, I'm, I'm afraid of this man. But the Lord said to him, verse 15, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And there's that idea. There's that call that God has, the Lord has for Saul. He's selected him for a special mission. But then we come to the, the real conversion story of Saul of Tarsus. Notice what happens in verse 17 through 19. Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as he came, has sent me that, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. You remember, he had been struck blind by seeing this bright light, the glory of Jesus. 
But now that blindness, has, his sight has been restored. Not only has his physical sight been restored, but now he sees the truth. He sees the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior. That he's not an imposter as he had thought once before. As Saul uh, retells his story, Acts 22, we read, listen to what he says. The God of our fathers has chosen you. This is, he's repeating what Ananias had said to him. That you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. There's that mission that the Lord has for Saul. But yet, Saul's been confronted by Christ. He's been fasting and praying, doing a lot of introspection and a lot of uh, expressing repentance. And now watch what he's told. And now, why are, you why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Why are you waiting, Saul? Be baptized. Why? So your sins can be washed away. And in so doing, you're calling on the name of the Lord. Do you see it? In a state of contrition, in a state of he's been confronted by the Christ, he's painfully aware of his sins, he's fasting, he's praying, he's longing to know that he can be forgiven by God. But even in that state of contrition, and even though he's praying probably for salvation, it is not until he's told how he should respond that his sins are washed away. Why are you waiting, Saul? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's when, biblically speaking, that's when Saul came in contact with the cleansing blood of Jesus. That's exactly why people were told on the day of Pentecost when they were con convicted of their sin of crucifying the very Son of God. They were told, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even those who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, are told, you can have the forgiveness of sins. Now they were convicted that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And they're told you need to repent, you need to turn from sin, turn to follow Jesus as a way of life, and be baptized, be immersed. And the idea is be immersed in water. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when they, obeyed, when they received his word, about 3,000 obeyed the gospel. They were baptized into Christ. And what happened? They came in contact with the cleansing blood of Jesus and their sins were washed away and they were added to the church. Saul, as contrite, as penitent, as prayerful as he was, didn't come in contact with the cleansing blood of Jesus until he was, he was baptized into Christ. That's his conversion story, but folks, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Look with me to Acts chapter 9, last part of verse 19. Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, 
Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name of Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. What's the point? The point here is what we see in Saul is, is not a he's baptized, now it's done. What we see in Saul is someone who's converted to Christ, who now has this God-given mission and is faithful to fulfilling it, faithful in following Jesus for the rest of his life, giving his life to the cause of Christ. You see, our conversion doesn't end at baptism. It continues for the rest of our lives. So see Saul and his conversion and compare it to your own. You could summarize the conversion of Saul like this. He stopped or he was stopped by Jesus. He stopped going his way, thinking that his way was the will of God. Number two, he submitted. He submitted his life to the Savior. It began with the question, what shall I do, Lord? He, he was in, then in a position to hear what God's will for him was. As are we. When we stop going our way, even if we think this is the way of God, and we truly submit to the Savior, then we surrender. We see Saul surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. He became obedient uh, from his baptism and to fulfilling the plans that God had for his life. The question for you and for me is, have you been converted to Christ? And as you think about your spiritual journey, may I pose this question, where are you on your spiritual journey? Where are you on your spiritual journey? You may have had significant events in your, in your life that changed your view of Jesus, that had an impact on your life, that caused you to, to do some introspection and, and really become contrite in the sight of God. You're on your way. You are on your way. You may have come to a point in your life when convicted of that sin and being contrite, being penitent, you've been praying to God, God save me from my sin. You're on your way. You're on your way. But have you been baptized for the reason for which Saul was told to be baptized? To have your sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. And it may be that you're ready to follow through with that part of the, the story of salvation. To appropriate that cleansing blood of Jesus to your own life. The same way Saul did. But may I also ask this question. Have you continued to follow the Lord faithfully like Saul who became Paul? Or have you gotten off track? Have we gotten off track? Do we need to come back home as one who's wandered away? What's your story? Is there anything lacking as you compare it to Saul's story? If you're ready to be baptized into Christ, the baptistry is ready and the water's warm. And if, even if it was cold, wouldn't it be worth it? To come in contact with the cleansing blood of Jesus, not because of the water, but because of what God says happens when we surrender our lives in obedience to His will. Have you been faithful to the Lord since your baptism into Christ? Have you continued to follow Him 
as a way of life or of other things distracted you and caused you to get off course. If you want to get back on track, if you need the prayers of the church to that end, or if, you're, if you have a heavy burden on your heart that you want our church family to pray with you and for you, we'd love to. And won't you come right now as we stand and sing?